So tonight we're talking about relationships, marriage. This is lesson four of what are my unique values. The entire point of this course was to talk about unique values, unique Jewish values that the world desperately needs but has not adopted. There are many values the world desperately needs and has adopted. For example, we introduced the world to the idea of monotheism, of God. That's been adopted by, I would say, majority of at least Western civilization. We've introduced the world to the idea of the seven-day work week. There's no other source for a seven-day work week besides the Bible. Actually, Napoleon, in the beginning of the French Revolution, decided to make a metric work week. It lasted 13 years. People couldn't handle 10 days. The world adopted this idea of working for six days and resting on the seventh, whether they rest on Saturday or they rest on Sunday or they rest on Saturday and Sunday and Friday as well. The point is the idea of seven days and then at the end of the seven days there being a rest is a Jewish value the world has adopted. Over the past couple of weeks, we've spoken about a number of values the world desperately needs. We spoke about the idea of destiny. We spoke about the idea of redemption. Last week, we spoke about action. And this week, we're speaking about marriage, but not marriage in the way that you're thinking. Marriage as a value. What is, if you had to take away all of the Hollywood feeling of marriage, if you had to take away all of the diamonds are forever and all of the, sorry, I'm sorry, <laughs> and all of the, uh, the, the, the romance and the excitement, what would you distill in the value of marriage? If you had to describe it as a, in a course of ethics and morals, what would the value of marriage be? Okay, sure. One, respect. Respect. Okay. Support. Support. Choice. Choice. Honesty. Honesty. Roots and foundation. What is that? Roots, foundation. Roots and foundation. Continuance. Friendship. Friendship. Commitment. Commitment. Honoring parents and generations. Honoring generations. So what I'm listening to are a number of values that are incorporated into marriage. But if you had to distill marriage into a value on itself, saying the marriage itself was a value, how would you define that value? Again, outside of the Hollywood feeling of marriage, let's not think about what they've tried to sell us about marriage, but ra rather what marriage really is. Companionship. Companionship. Marriage as a value equals companionship, okay? I don't, I no, no, it's good, it's good. Throw it out there. I think it's important to get our wheels turning to think about these things. While you think about it, let's get started with tonight's lesson.
appreciation as a value. That's great. We're going to go back to this over the course of this evening because the goal is we're going to take a look at history. We're going to take a look at various texts and we're going to try to figure out how to define and distill marriage as a value. In the times of Julius Caesar, of Hannibal, of Alexander the Great, in the times of all the great conquerors, it was a time when people were being lauded for their military achievements, a time when troubledoers were signing epic poems, a time when people would be praised for being great warriors. If you were a warrior, if you were brave hearts, then you were incredible. If you were Alexander the Great, if you were Julius Caesar, this was a man. This was a real man. Along came the Jews, and the Jews said, one day, all of this is going to change. There's going to be a time when war will be ridiculed, when those who look for fights with others will be condemned. The Jews were laughed at. Many were killed. Kings didn't want to hear this. Kings didn't want to hear about a time of peace. They kept their peoples under control by finding an enemy. The easiest way to keep a group of people under control is by having a common enemy. We see that in the negative form with white supremacy today and anti-Semitism, etc. How did Hitler build such an incredible power base in Germany? What did he do? The first thing he did was he identified an enemy. It was the Jews, and later it was the Russians, but it never stopped being the Jews. The way you build a base is you get people to hate someone or something. And along came these great Jewish prophets, and they said, one day, this is all going to end. People are going to be praised for making peace. This is an insane idea that great men will become peacemakers. It's going to be a radical vision. And I think that's why Martin Luther King employed this beautiful biblical oratory from Exodus to bring that message to life. Although he was a black man and he was humiliated and he was persecuted, he was prepared to employ nonviolence for the first time just to achieve justice. That's an incredible idea. I think that there are not enough people that talk about some of the great 20th century visionaries who saw something incredible, that you are able to build spirit, you're able to build morale, not by war, 
but with peace. And that was something Martin Luther King did better than anyone else. But where does, yes? Most of the people that take action to use the power, they have a scare. They have, they become scared. Absolutely. Fear is the best way to, 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 to gather people. And we're going to talk about that a little later. That fear is the best way to get people riled up. All of this, this idea of the superhero, this idea of the great warrior, it all has its origins in a fascinating place. What are the two most famous poems of all time? The Iliad and and the Odyssey. Thank you. Two most famous poems. Iliad and the Odyssey. Who wrote them? Homer. What are they about? They're about the great Trojan Wars. They're about Odysseus' long journey home. Do you know where this great military tradition came from? Long ago, in Asia Minor, a blind poet sat down with a pen and contemplated the state of humankind. He thought about what life was, and he concluded that life was pathetic. What was life? It's pathetic. You're born. Your mother has to nurse you. You soil your diapers. You get older. You're an apprentice to a blacksmith. Your father teaches you how to sit behind the rear of an ox. And so for the next 20 to 30 years, you plow the fields. And by 35, you're dead. So Homer said to himself, that's it? That's it? That's life? This is terrible. Life is completely pathetic. And he said that I have to create something more. I have to give life greater significance. And Homer invented the myth of the superhero. He invented the superhero. His message was simple. You're right. Your life is pathetic. What are you? You're a farmer. What do you do? You grow potatoes. You're a joke. And you're never going to be anything but a foolish joke. I feel sorry for how boring and how pathetic your life is. But there's something I, the great Homer, can do for you. Homer said, I can tell you stories of great men who lived lives of glory. I can tell you stories of great men who were immortal. I can tell you the story of a Superman who was so above, so above all of that, that all you can do is look upon him with awe, look upon him with wonder. And by reading those stories, you can live vicariously through them. You'll be charmed by those stories and your life won't be pathetic anymore because you can live through the stories of the great superheroes. And so from this, Homer invents the myth of the superhero. You're a nothing, you're a school teacher, but do you know Odysseus? Odysseus, he was a great war hero. Let me tell you about him. 
And he started writing all these poems. People started reading them. And oh my God, I'm a big nothing. But Achilles, Achilles, he could fight a thousand men at once. And then women, they looked at them themselves and they saw they were pathetic. Ah, you're not very beautiful, but Helen of Troy, she was so beautiful. Now, with every value, with every creation, there is another value that is left behind. And that's something we've been speaking about over the past number of weeks, which means if you make a choice, you're going to leave the non-choices behind. So if you think your life is pathetic and you open up the Iliad or the Odyssey and you start thinking that Odysseus is the greatest thing that ever happened to the world and you live vicariously through him, I mean, today we don't have to do that anymore. We have Us Weekly and People Magazine that replace the Homer's works because those, my friends, are great works of literature right there. But they do account for more than 70% of all magazine sales. All other magazines are in the other 30%. Tabloid magazines account for 70% of all magazine sales. So today we don't need any literature. We have fine celebrity literature. But once again, it's exactly the same thing. It's the Homer myth that your life is pathetic, so you have to find whatever her name or whatever his name is to live vicariously through. There are people who have been watching soap operas. I think they go on, what is it, 35 years? The same story for 35 years and they can't miss the soaps. I was surprised to hear that people are still watching this stuff. So with every value, there is a non-value that's created. So what we're going to call the consequence of making that choice. So yeah, maybe our lives are not pathetic and we can live vicariously through the celebrities, but now there's a non-value, there's a consequence that, was hap- that happened as a result of that. Number one, war became glorified. War was everything everyday life wasn't. It was exciting. There was drama. It was about proving your masculinity by defeating your enemy. But not just defeating your enemy, defeating your enemy in mortal combat. The second thing Homer did is Homer made us feel utterly ordinary. His characters were so extraordinary that we all became ordinary. So if we had anything that may have been extraordinary, well, you can't touch. Give me the name of the celebrity. What's the famous celebrities, huh? Brad Pitt. Pitt. You can't touch Brad Pitt. So if you think you were anything, now you have Brad Pitt that has been raised. I mean, I can't even touch that. Not in financial standing, not in fame, not in popularity, not in uh, talents or abilities, not in skill. He's got everything and I've got nothing. So the, the consequences of these things is that now we become nothing. More of a nothing than we would have been without it. 
<laughs> yeah. So the Homeric view of mankind has prevailed to this day. Let's talk about hockey. Two combatants, and they're going to, well, not kill each other anymore, but they're going to fight. It's a game of competition. Which team is better? We're going to watch this for the next three or four months, cheering for our team. We're going to boo the other team, especially if they have something to do with Boston. <coughs> or Toronto. And, or Toronto. We're going to take the Carey Price, uh, after we make a Mishabera for him. <laughs> we'll, uh, we're going to take the Carey Price jersey, we're going to put it on. We're going to take the Petrie jersey and put it on. We may even take a P.K. Subban jersey because we still like him because he gave a lot of money to the Children's Hospital even though he uh, is not with us anymore. He plays for the other side. And all of this because I'm pathetic. I'm a nothing. I know I'm a nothing. But if I wear the jersey of Petrie or Price, or Subban, then all of a sudden, you can see the name on my back, I am now a somebody. It's unbelievable. Research has shown that majority of husbands and wives that go out for an evening, they go to the movies. They have nothing to talk about because they're so ordinary. So they go to the movies, because Hollywood gives them these modern-day Homeric heroes. You can watch Angelina Jolie. She's pretty. And when you come home, you don't stop there. You keep talking about her. Because in real life, well, she's adopting kids. I don't know what happened to Brad Pitt, but, no, but she's done such great things for society. Two great heroes perhaps meet each other. Now, life is so special. When we're sitting around the dinner table, what are we talking about? This popular person, that popular person, that becomes the conversation. Somebody told me they don't like the Super Bowl, but they had to watch the Super Bowl because if they don't watch the Super Bowl and they come to work the next day, there's nothing to talk about. So, we're in a relationship we're in a serious relationship, but we're not going to talk about our relationship because that's nothing to talk about. We're not going to talk about, I don't know, things that really matter in our lives because our lives are pathetic. Our lives are ordinary. Instead, I'm going to talk about these great superheroes and I'm going to live vicariously through them. And I think that these two great consequences that Homer invented live in our society more than ever before. Number one, we still revel in the glory in combat. We love it. That's why we love watching politics. We love watching those debates. I'm even talking about, I'm not talking about combat, like we love watching other things, all these action films. Even just the debates, watching Trump and Hillary, watching uh, Obama and Romney, Watching, uh, let's see who's next. 
Trump and whoever they, whoever's going to go against them. You turn on the news today, and it's depressing. The good news is never what sells. It's the bad news. They've got to make sure to instill what Jacob said before. They instill fear in us. It's drama, drama, drama. Someone is losing their home. The next, the milk in your cereal is killing you. There's mercury in the tuna fish. Drama, drama, drama. Lead. Oh, lead in the water. Oh my gosh. There's lead in that. Now, I want to tell you. There was lead in the water before they started talking about it. And everybody wasn't talking about it. And everybody seemed okay. But now there's lead in the water. It happened overnight. And now, oh my gosh, what are we going to do about it? And it's the thing. And it's the conversation everywhere goes. Drama, drama, drama. Number two. Once again, the superhero still lives today. You begin to see why Hollywood is so successful. Hollywood is the most influential media on earth. Just to give you an example, what's the most recognizable name of the 20th century? Superman. Elvis Presley. Did we forget about him so fast? So the Japanese prime minister comes to the United States and he has one request. He doesn't want to see Lincoln Memorial. He doesn't want to see Grant's tomb. No, he wants to see Graceland. And so they take him to Graceland. Why is Hollywood so successful? What did Hollywood tap into? It tapped into one thing. The human need for the hero. The human need for the superhero. Every movie has a superhero. It's either Arnold Schwarzenegger trying to speak English or Sylvester Stallone trying to speak any language. But we have this need to have the superheroes. Hollywood tapped into our desperation for larger-than-life superheroes. And that's what Homer understood. And that's what made the Iliad and the Odyssey so deeply influential. So, conflict and heroes, the two great consequences that still exist today. We love conflict. We love conflict. We're addicted to sports. It's not one kind of conflict, it's going to be another kind of conflict. The Olympics, the biggest cultural phenomenon in history. And secondly, disempowerment. We wait for someone else. We wait for a hero to do the work for us while we remain pretty much indistinguished. So years ago, I was teaching a bar mitzvah boy. And the family invited me over one evening. And the boy said, I want to show you the room that he had just decorated. So we all went up to his room. And he showed me, on his, in his room, there were huge posters of rappers, I forgot their names, and Brad Pitt, and this one, and that one. So I say to him, oh, that's nice, playing stupid. You have pictures of your cousins. These must be your aunts and uncles. Who's on your wall? He says, no, 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 no. He starts laughing. They don't have any relation to me. They're celebrities. You must recognize some of them. So I say, well, I know who they are, but I figured that you're related to famous people. 
He says, I'm not. So you're not. So what are they doing on your wall? Well, they're like my heroes. These are the words he uses. They're like my heroes. So I, take an ex- I examine the walls more closely, and I see there's no picture of your mother here. There's no picture of your father here. He says, no, well, there's no, there is no picture of them. But you told me that you have all your heroes on your wall. He said, but, but, but my mother's not my hero. So your mother's not your hero. She gets up early in the morning, every single day. She makes lunch for you. She works so that you can have some food on the table. Your father, he's busting his chops so you can go to a good school. They're not your heroes? These are not your heroes? How many kids would have a picture of their parents on their wall near those celebrities? Yet he calls some person he knows very little about that probably is not the best role model, his hero. He uses that term, hero. When there's real people in his lives, there's real people that are real heroes in this child's life that he doesn't even give an iota of a thought about. And I think here we can start to understand why marriage, the idea of marriage, is a core Jewish value. The ancient world had great masculine figures, the great military heroes. They had great people that we should aspire to be. We should aspire to be generals, aspire to be conquerors. And if you're a woman, you should be like Cleopatra, who ruled over all of Egypt, or Helen of Troy, for whom men fought for. There's always a military context. It's always about power and fame. And then along came the Jews. The Jews said a man must marry. And if you remember one thing from tonight's lesson, this is it. The definition of the value of marriage is the following. The masculine raw aggression must be softened by exposure to the feminine. Masculine raw aggression must be softened by exposure to the feminine. Raw military, the raw military man has to be softened by the peacemaking woman. You see, there are two energies in our world, according to Kabbalah. There's a masculine aggressive energy, and there's what we call the feminine passive energy. The masculine aggressive energy and the feminine passive energy. Men have always tried to distinguish themselves. Let me go out and kill someone. Let me become a king. I'm going to become an emperor. I am going to bet the biggest house. I'm going to buy myself the nicest car. I'm going to make sure to have blue suede shoes. Why? Because look at me. 
Look at me with my Tesla. I'm okay now. <laughs> because only if I'm better, only if I'm more competitive, only if I put someone else down and I lift myself up, then, then I'll be a somebody. And amazingly, the Jews commanded men to marry so that we would finally neutralize that raw masculine aggression that has brought so much conflict into the world. You'll notice that Judaism is the only religion where marriage is an obligation. And Catholicism is a sacrament, as in most Christianity. It's a holy thing to do, but it's not an obligation. The Talmud makes a strange statement. If a person isn't married by 25, God says he's destroying my world. Now what? He's destroying my world? What the heck did the guy do? Just because he's dated five women, national average, by the way. <laughs> Why is it that he's destroying my world? And here's the answer. Because if he's just a man and he doesn't have a wife, if there isn't something to soften his raw masculinity, then he's bringing too much aggression into the world and it needs to be neutralized. I'm going to prove it to you. Look at Wall Street. Look at how much of an aggressive culture it is. The richer you are, you deserve only the best, the supermodel. All these investment bankers, well, not all, but many of them are known to be womanizers. Notice that they bring and aggressiveness, even to dating. It's all about competitiveness. You've been to New York recently? It's all about competitiveness, even in dating. If you date 50 women, well, then you'll be able to choose the best because it becomes just like hockey. It's not about marrying someone who's good enough, who meets your needs. It's not about Miss Right for me. It's about marrying someone who's the best on paper. The same way that you can say in any given year, who's the best NFL team or who's the best NHL team? What's the best baseball team? Or the best car or the best suit? It all depends on how much it costs. So it's the value proposition associated with the woman. If you take something that is very soft, and you turn it into something that's very aggressive, you rob it of its innocence. And that's why the dating scene has become so foul in most major cities. It's not loving, it's not nurturing, it's just about constantly being compared to someone else. That's why I stopped doing these singles events. I can't stand them anymore. People are coming in, hi, how are you? And they're looking around the room, they're not looking at the person in front of them. It's about who else there is. Or I set someone up on a date. They're like, is there anyone else? What do you mean, is there anyone else? I just set you up with someone else. Why are you looking for someone else after that? Tinder. That's why. 
Of course, swipe right, swipe left, swipe right. You know, is there anyone else? Anyone else? You just got the anyone else. The women know this better. The men also know this. You go to these... The Talmud says, the Talmud says, if you're not married by 25, then there's nothing to check your aggression. And you'll even take love and put a price tag on it. The essence of marriage, the value of marriage, is that masculinity must always be tempered by the feminine. Here's another example. What is the one thing the Torah says that if you have found this, you found good? Does the Torah say if you found God, you found good? No, I never saw that anywhere. Does the Torah say if you found the Torah, if you found the good book, then you found good? No, it doesn't say that either. It comes from the book of Proverbs. It says, Matzah Isha, Matzah Tov, which translates as if you found a wife or you found a woman, you found goodness. If you found a woman, you found goodness. Think about it a second. What an incredible statement. Do you know any religion on earth that says this? It doesn't say that about God. It doesn't say it about learning Torah. It doesn't say it about fasting on Yom Kippur. And not even about giving charity. The only time it says that you've definitely found good is if you are a man that finds a woman. Why? Because through that you found the balance between the masculine and the feminine. Ever see uh, environments that are too masculine? For 10 years of my life, I lived in male dormitories. Ever been to a male dormitory? I, I, I go to male dormitories today and I'm like, how did I ever do this? How did I survive this? All I can think of is this place really needs a woman. It smells. It's stinky. There's no women there to to domesticate these men. And if you notice this, you're going to notice that the most aggressive societies in the world or the most aggressive societies in history had no feminine input whatsoever. Hitler did not have one woman in his inner circle. And they, they, some say this, what was her name? Lenny, Lenny uh, Reifenstahl, I think that was her name. She was nothing but a propaganda filmmaker for Hitler. May his name be erased. I'm saying his name too many times. Even Eva Braun, what would he do? He would go out of his way to give her wads of cash in public so people thought that she was just whatever, that she would just use her. He was trying to show that she wasn't his girlfriend, that he pays her. Now, why was it important for him to show that? Because the great Fuhrer doesn't need a woman. There's no soft 
gentle spot in the heart of the Iron Fuhrer. He was going to avenge Germany's humiliation from the First World War. He was going to go after the Jews, and there couldn't be a woman. He had to show that he had no softening influences in his life. The most aggressive societies are those that have no feminine influence at all. And the most peacemaking societies are those that do. And why? Because aside from the nurturing part of the feminine energy, besides from the nurturing that the, feminine, the, the, the woman brings into the relationship, they raise these soldiers. They nurse them. They diaper them. They don't want to see them die over some stupid war for honor. The woman is able to see through the stupidity of the male ego. The ancient world, the ancient world was all about war. They brought into the Homeric lie that they don't matter. And the only way you can matter is you beat someone at something that establishes your uniqueness and the fact that he is ordinary. And we're so afraid of not mattering. By the way, that's how slavery is born. Because once you fear someone, then they're not afraid of you and they become your master. That's why the media tries to scare the living daylights out of us. They want to master us. They want us to tune in every single day at 6.30 or now we have a better, we have 24-hour news channels. Just keep it on the whole time. They want us to go on their websites because the more fear you have, the more you're going to look at them to tell you what you should be afraid of. And then they own you and they can sell that to advertisers. That is the fear-based culture that we live in. That's why every woman's magazine is about scaring the living daylights out of you. How to get rid of your wrinkles. It's another way of saying... You're old. And that's why you buy the magazine. You see these things on there. You're like, oh my gosh, I have to know that. Because I'm ordinary. And if I buy the magazine, I'm going to find all the solutions to the world's problems. And for just $4.95 plus tax, I can find true peace through that magazine. But the point is that it becomes all about competition. It's all about aggressive masculine. But isn't that what the country is missing? Isn't that what our society is missing? This great country. And great Western countries, the US, England, Australia, Canada, so wealthy, yet so miserable. The Western civilization consumes 80% of the world's antidepressants. We're one-thirtieth the population of the earth, but consuming most of the antidepressants. Here's why. It's so flippin' aggressive. We know how to master. We know how to conquer. We know how to be men. 
But we don't know how to be women. We don't know how to stay in love. I say this a lot, and I stand by it. I think that Women's Lib did something incredible to the world, and I'm so proud to be living in a society that's post-Women's Lib, and I'm so proud to raise my daughters in a society that they don't have to even think about some of the things that perhaps their grandparents had to think about. But there's one thing that Women's Lib destroyed, and that is wholesome relationships. We gained everything and lost one value, the value of a wholesome relationship. We can put man on the moon, we can build the internet, but we can't stay in love. Anything that is nurturing, love, raising children, we're just completely clueless. Things that were so obvious to so many other cultures and societies and generations, we are completely clueless. It's one of the reasons why I've been going around lately interviewing couples that are married 60 years plus. Because I figure that maybe this generation can glean some of the wisdom from their relationships. Something that for sure that I see more and more has been completely lost from our society. We have to start buying books now. You can go to any bookstore, or you can even go on Amazon. Do you know how many millions of books there are on how to fall in love? Do you know how many books there are on how to date? It should be obvious. Wasn't this stuff once intuitive? Can you imagine buying a book on how to go to the bathroom? Can you imagine buying a book on how to eat dinner? You pick up a fork... And you go like this. What's happened to our society that there's hundreds of thousands of books on how to date and how to fall in love? Ten ways to fall in love. Ten secrets to falling in love. What's happened? Judaism's contribution was to understand that we have to finally soften raw masculinity in order to create peace and harmony. That's the secret. Now, witness how this Jewish concept of marriage, the softening of the masculine through exposure to the feminine, how it's triumphed. People like Martin Luther King, people like Gandhi, who said we don't need to fight. We can all get along. Can't we all be friends? Let's make peace. This dates back to the book of Isaiah, where he says, the wolf shall lie with the lamb. If they had lived thousands of years ago, they would have been ridiculed. People would have laughed at them. What are you thinking about? Peace, Gandhi. Stop talking about peace. What do you want a piece of? Think about Nelson Mandela. Another guy who refused to fight. And who were the most hated men of the past 10 years? Osama bin Laden, Saddam Hussein, Gaddafi. People who were fighting. What an amazing idea that the most respected men of our time are people who are peacemaking and the most hated men are warriors. You know it. Saddam Hussein... Osama bin Laden, Gaddafi, if they lived a thousand years ago, my gosh, these men would have been the great Julius Caesars. 
They would have been the Hannibals. And today, they're hated. People celebrated when they were killed. Or when they found out they were killed. The man who in ancient times would have been the great conqueror. The man who would have been the great warrior. The guy who was fighting for glory. It's gone. What's the most respected prize in the world today? The Nobel Peace Prize. Can you imagine a Nobel Peace Prize 2,000 years ago? And I think now we can start to understand what is the value of marriage. Marriage as a value. Relationships as a value. It's also why Judaism has Shabbat as its holiest day. The day when you're like a woman and not a man. It's the feminine passive rather than the masculine aggressive day. No competition, no making money, no mastery. You can't master the world. You retreat from the world and you respect it. That's why on Shabbat we sing songs like Lecha Dodi, come let us greet the Shabbat bride. We refer to the Shabbat as the bride because the feminine is holier than the masculine. That's why we sing songs like Eshet Chayo, praising the woman of excellence. It's not just the woman of excellence. It is the woman of excellence, but it's not just the woman of excellence. It's the feminine part of ourselves, which is so dormant, which is so underdeveloped in our time. We all need to be a little more gentler. We all need to be a little more nurturing. the one thing that lasts. Fear and war, they have a shelf life. But peace is everlasting. Relationships, marriage, is so sensual. It's such a sensual value to us because a man choosing a woman is another statement for the need to harmonize two energies. Both are necessary. But if we can harmonize it within ourselves, if we can harmonize the masculine and the feminine within ourselves, that would change the world, change ourselves, change the people around us, and eventually change the world. We're so ambitious these days. Everyone wants to make money. People are working till 12, 1, 2 in the morning with no time for relationships. So many people that I meet, they have no time for relationships because they're just working for almighty God dollar. You know, it's funny. When I was living in Sydney, all the singles would say to me that the reason why they weren't married is because there's no one to marry. I'm in Sydney, Australia. I'm far away from the Jews. And if I was in a place like New York, then I'd be married. So, I go to New York and find out that they're all singles for 20 years. Even the ones from Sydney who moved to New York are still single 20 years later. Are there not enough singles in New York? I thought you came from Sydney to New York because there weren't enough singles in Sydney for you to marry. Because it's so aggressive. The whole characteristic of New York is so aggressive. Montreal is no better. 
It's not a place that nurtures relationships. Someone who says there's not enough singles in a place, you know what you say to them? But all you need is one. What does that mean, there aren't enough? You need 50? I know five is a national average, but come on, I gotta be better than the national average. At least 10 times that. The point is that there's nothing to temper our ambition today. And that's why it's so important, I think, for us to have these discussions. To make sure that the nurturing side of ourselves doesn't weaken. To do things and not get paid for them. To just volunteer. The idea of volunteering. Not to always think that time is money. Time is not money. Time is life. To give charity with no one knowing. To take your hard-earned money and to give it away and get no credit for it. To do things that don't get you ahead professionally for your own balance. Just to be able to do things for the sake of doing them. To temper that masculine energy. Maimonides said in his guide to the perplexed, he said that we're all naturally extremists that we're all naturally unbalanced. Look at Americans. They kill themselves at work. One of the reasons why I moved to Canada is I couldn't handle that, that, that society that just everything is work, 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 work. 11 and a half months a year, people work nonstop, and then what do they do? They go on vacation for two weeks in their corpses. They're literally vegged on the beach. <laughs> It's the strangest thing. When you're at home, you can't stop. And then you go to the Bahamas and you just lie. You just lie there. Because we're not a tempered society. That's not going to vacation. Being a vegetable on the beach is not a vacation. Because then after you come back, you need a vacation from the vacation. Somehow, someone decided, and we have become a product of that, that we need extremes to feel alive. If I don't have this or this, I'm either working, work hard, play hard. Whoa, relax. It's not that crazy. You know what a vacation is? Right now, this is a vacation. You're not trying to achieve anything. You're not trying to make money. You're not working hard. You're being passive and learning and growing, being reflective. This is a true vacation. But because we're not a temperate society, because our lives live in extremes, because we're addicted to drama, we need these extremes to feel alive. And then we look at these prophecies like the wolf shall lie with the lamb. I mean, that was a great metaphor for a temperate society. And the only way that our society can be tempered is by tapping into the feminine. By being able to find 
that feminine energy. And in Kabbalah, we believe and we know of that everyone has both male and female energy within them. So we couldn't be attracted to someone else if we didn't have a piece of them within us. Attraction is not opposites. Attraction is similarity. So we couldn't find similarity within someone else unless it was within ourselves. So we all have that ability to be tempered. We all have that ability to find that peacemaking energy within ourselves. But we are not designed to be alone. We're designed to live and to be with someone else. And someone else who can either provide the raw masculinity or the passive feminism. They're both important. They're both two halves of a whole. And that's why we say that it's two halves of a whole because originally the soul was one complete soul and then it was divided in half. And then the two go searching for one another. And together they make it a whole complete. That's what it is. Now, how do you know you found that person? Today you can't know because we're too removed from it. We don't have. Years ago, they had an inkling of it because it was real, it was raw. They knew how to do it. They didn't have these crazy relationships. It wasn't extreme. So when someone found it, they knew they found it. But today, I don't think we can be trusted anymore to find it ourselves. We're going to have to figure out the next step, and that's finding values within looking for what's right in our relationships. We're going to have to take it on its merits, not on its mazel. We're going to take it on, on, on its value proposition and not on what it is identifiable. It's definitely not what we think it is. The easiest way I think we can go about doing it is... If you take, and I've done this with so many singles, and a lot of them find it really uh, uplifting, where you just take a blank piece of paper and you write down what you're looking for. And you say, uh, just write down all the the kind of person you're looking for. And you make that list and you make sure that list has everything in it. And then you take another piece of paper and you write down, who am I? And what do I bring to the relationship? And then you take those two lists and you look at them side by side and you ask yourself a profound question. Can these two people be in a relationship? The person who I'm looking for and the person who I am. Can they be in a relationship? And if they can't be in a relationship, well then, what has to change? Is it who I am that has to change? Or what I'm looking for that has to change? Well, you can draw your own conclusion on that. And the easiest thing is, you don't have to even change anything. All you have to do is circle the things that are the same. Because similarities attract, right? So if you, whatever you're, you bring to the relationship, if it's also on your list of what you're looking for, it's probably what you're really looking for. And you end up with a list of, a very short list, of things that are really values of yours. And that's a value within the value. Understanding the value of the relationship and then understanding your unique values within the relationship what's important to you. And then you'll have your list of what you're really looking for. A fascinating study came out a couple of years ago. And by the time someone's 35, they will have dated four people they could have married. Which means, 
in other words, that for most people in our society, they're actually meeting the right people, but they have no idea what they're looking for. Well, you ever walked into the store not knowing what to buy? You ever walk into a store without a list? It's not the best idea. You either get nothing or everything. Right? So, there are people that we are actually in relationships with. We have no idea are the right people. Because we have no idea what we're looking for. So if we understand, if we are able to distill it back to its core values, then we're going to see something so different. We're going to see so, something so different about ourselves. We're not going to be scared anymore. We have to back away from the fear mentality. We have to understand that the world is a beautiful place. The rebel used to call the world a garden. I've come to my garden, he would say. He would quote his father-in-law. Because the world really is a garden. And there's so many magnificent people and experiences within this garden. So, trying to create fear is not going to help anyone. It's not going to make the world a better place. So let's review. The definition of the value of marriage is tempering raw masculinity with exposure to the feminine. Let's take fear out of it. And we have to know what we're looking for. Those three things, that's it. Then we have a core principled value. A non-negotiable. It's my non-negotiable. We believe the most important thing that we can do in our adult life is marriage, is, is being in a, in, in, a, in a serious relationship. That's the most important thing we can do because it's two halves of a whole, because we have to find someone who's able to complete us. And that's the whole value.